Hello, my name is Michelle Ong and I'm a computer scientist. Welcome to the first episode of Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are, hopefully ELIFI style. My first guest is Rebecca Lim. Rebecca is a stem cell biologist by training and holds appointments at both the Monash Health Translation Precinct, as well as the Ritchie Center at the Hudson Institute of Medical Research, where she runs her own research group. She's also an inventor on two patents in her area. Join us as we talk about weightlifting, her love of dogs, and her work in regenerative medicine and stem cell therapies. Also, just a content warning, we touch briefly on animal-based research. Nothing graphic, but just so you know. All right, here we go. Thank you for taking the time. It's going to be fun. Thanks for being my experiment. Um, but yes, yeah, so yeah, how long ago did we meet now? It was uni, right? 2004, because that would be the what? year I started exactly. EI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because oh, wow. remember there was the EI and Jodo Championships in 2005. Yeah. The year before that. Ah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's nuts. Are you still doing any of that? Um, I haven't been since I started weightlifting, actually, mm-hmm. I lie. So it, there was probably about three months where yeah. there was an overlap. I was still training and I was still doing weightlifting. Um, and the whole reason for starting off weightlifting was because I was just getting quite bored. You know, because the cutters don't really change, the, the challenges haven't changed and I needed something new and I also found that it was a bit of a chore to have to teach at work and be in charge of people at work and then come into my hobby and have to and teach and to be responsible. There. Yeah. <laughs> That's tough. And I missed learning something from scratch and I'm being taught. You know, it's, it's so nice and it's so burden-free to go and just go, I have no idea what I'm doing. Something's wrong. Help me fix this. Um, so, yeah, so that that was why I went in search for a completely different hobby. Yeah. <laughs> Very strange hobby. Well, it's not that strange. A lot of people are doing that kind of thing now. I think a lot of people are doing CrossFit, which I had watched, and I thought, oh, that looks like too much cardio for me. <laughs> Honestly, I watched CrossFit and just went, mm, that's that's not me. Um, and I was, I'd always been at the gym. So I always, for, so this was coming on maybe four or five years that I had been working with a personal trainer and I was looking after myself just, you know, from a diet perspective and exercise and trying to maintain good health. So I was going to the gym purely for good health. And the whole Olympic weightlifting thing came when my my regular personal trainer was away on holidays and I got assigned a different personal trainer and she just said, come along with me. This is not the boys only zone. And she introduced me to the squat rack. Um, she got me doing deadlifts and I thought, oh, this is, this is kind of interesting, kind of fun. Um, and she, because our sessions were always in the morning, there was hardly anyone around, so there was no intimidation of I've got to go to this it's really busy and full of very beefy men and do my very 
sad, very tiny weights and, you know, <laughs> all that <laughs> judgment. So there was none of that because it was early. It was just us. Um, and it helped that it was a female trainer who was just all about encouraging me to, to do this. And then she said, oh, have you heard of Olympic weightlifting? And I thought, has that something to do with the Olympics? <laughs> that was honestly my response. And so she then showed me a couple of videos on YouTube and said, yes, it's done at the Olympics, but this is what I mean. And what struck me was that weightlifting, in my head, what I thought weightlifting was, was actually powerlifting, where they do very, very, very heavy weights and the people are just really beefy and all muscle. I hadn't realized, I hadn't known anything about Olympic weightlifting. And what really struck me was the videos that she showed me, and she was probably quite strategic about this. The videos that she showed me were women, and they were in the 45 to 64 kilo weight class. So these were small, petite, obviously very strong women. And the speed that they had and the flexibility that they had, and that just kind of caught my eye and thought, oh, okay, so this sport is not just about being strong. You have to have all of these things. And so she said, well, if you like this, I can't teach you that, but I think you need to go look for an Olympic lifting gym and have a go see what you think. So I emailed maybe three or four different gyms. The first one that got back to me is the gym that I ended up staying with. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because you go into the that gym that I go to and about 70% are women. Oh, wow. That's an interesting <laughs> distribution. I know. So the head coach is male. Um, his assistant coach is female. But the clientele is, yes, yeah, 70% women. Um, they're, for the most part, they are not women in their 20s or 30s even. Um, about half of them are, you know, late 30s and older. Um, we've got a family where husband and wife come and then their mum looks after the child, and then then grandma comes. And <laughs> <laughs> then training, and they, they do like a little bit of a shift. So it's really nice because it's a very inclusive environment. People are all shapes and sizes in different stages of their journey. Um, and my, I think it's a very different sport because a little bit like Iaido that we both know, yeah. Um, it's a very individual sport. It's your turn or do your thing and you have your best attempt. The difference is, um, unlike Iaido where it's silent and everyone's just kind of watching, um, Olympic lifting, when it's your turn, the whole room is rooting for you. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you know the person, you just look at them and just think, wow, it took so much courage and so much training to get to where you are. And everyone's just cheering for you. So it's it's a very, very different sport. And I found that really appealed to me. Yeah. There's really no other aspect of my life where that happens. <laughs> just quietly yeah, there doing science so in the background. Well, there's a little bit of that. But then there's also the you cheer for your own team sort of thing. Yes. And that doesn't really happen with Olympic lifting. I think because everyone's trying to – you can see – Everyone's trying is, to achieve and – yeah. Yeah, and they're trying to beat their own record, their own previous mm. record. It's not even it's, it's like it's not competitive. It it's very community oriented. Um, I think there's there's the element of being community oriented, but there's also this focus on your personal best. Yeah, your personal best is your personal best. 
So it doesn't matter if you're lifting five kilos lighter than the last person because they know that you're each person's chasing after their own goals. So yeah. yeah. So I think that that kind of creates an atmosphere where everyone's just really encouraging. Yeah, that's fantastic. Such a yeah. different vibe. It is. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. you've been doing that how long now? Um, so it's May now, I'd say fifteen months. Oh, so not all so that not that not that long. No, not all that long. It feels like it's been ages because I think I I kind of obsess over things. I I didn't <laughs> I didn't go like once a week, um for a while and then increase my load. I just kind of went like, okay, sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So, Yeah, Yeah. it it, it is very addictive. It's always going to be addictive and you're feeling challenged when you're feeling like you're achieving constantly. Yeah, and we've all got our own things to work on. So you kind of, you know, you're given a program and you know what you're there to do. Yeah. So... I found that on top of just trying to get good at weightlifting, I found that I've also started to pay more attention to, you know, how active I am during the course of a day, um, drinking enough water, eating enough protein. Um, yeah, I'm sort of looking after my body a little bit better than I used yeah. to instead of just taking it for granted. Mm. Um, turning 40 this year also helps to kind of remind yeah. you. <laughs> <I'm not laughs> um yeah niggles cannot just be ignored <laughs> yeah yeah it's all starting to add up now <laughs> yes very much so <laughs> because you're committing so much to you know all the weightlifting stuff do you find that it's difficult to balance that with what you're doing at work or does it just kind of complement each other quite well I think the the, the most the biggest difference that weightlifting's made um, to my work, and this is what people have said to me as well, is that I am a lot more careful with my time. So it takes me about 45 minutes to get from work to where I train at peak hour. Um, So I am out the door at 5 p.m. And I used to stay at work till 7 8 p.m this this idea of work-life balance never really kind of struck i would work till i got tired and then i'd Mm. go home until you know i felt like i was done for the day and then i'd go home which wasn't the best for work-life balance um yeah and i think now with weightlifting i'm i'm a lot more conscious of that you know making sure i get enough sleep I never really mm. used to care about that either. It was just, you know, if I've slept, if I haven't slept enough, I haven't slept enough and I'll just drag myself into work feeling very sorry for myself. Um, yeah. These days I'm so much more disciplined about it. Um, so I think it's affected work, but in a positive way. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I've found as well is that I've become a lot more understanding. I, be- I think I've become a better teacher mm. because of my coach, watching how he trains beginners um, like myself and also being reminded that we all had to start somewhere has made me a lot kinder when I when I um, teach people I I tend to put frustration aside and kind of and also I 
recognize their own personal frustration. It's not that someone doesn't want to do a particular job well. They they want to do it well. They're yes. just as frustrated that they can't as much as I am. And it's been so helpful going into a sport and starting from scratch and being reminded like we all started here. Mm. No one's having fun right now. We're just going <laughs> to have to be brave and just get through this. Um, yeah. So it's been really helpful for work as well. That's amazing. Have they told you they've noticed that as well? I don't think they have, but I have kind of seen that they are a lot more relaxed. <laughs> and, and oh, no, it's not Rebecca. coming with, um, I screwed up, help. Yeah. So I'm, I think it's been, I think it's been good for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's benefiting. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you get, like, what interested you to get into stem cell research from you? Like, is that, did you study that specifically as a specialization or you just kind of fell into it? I did kind of fall into it. So I fell into stem cells and I, and I fell into clinical translation and now I've just fallen into stem cell clinical trials. Yeah. So, Stem cells was not something that was offered at uni when I was going through uni. It was it's so new. It it was so new. It was something that only researchers did. So there weren't even undergraduate units that talked about it. Yeah. Just by sheer luck, I selected a PhD project that had a component of stem cell research mm. in there. I didn't recognize it at the time. So my PhD research was how a drug that is meant to influence the progression of viral hepatitis, so hepatitis B and hepatitis C, mm -hmm. how patients staying on an antiviral drug would then also have lower instances of cancer, liver cancer. Oh. So chronic hepatitis, there's a much higher chance of patients going from chronic hepatitis to liver cancer. Yeah. That's... That's one of the more the, the natural progression of the disease, if you like. Yeah. What was observed was that if those patients stay on the antiviral treatment for a long period of time, they also get less cancer, even though it's an antiviral drug. It's not an anti-cancer drug. Yeah. My PhD project was to try and understand how that worked. Yeah. And what I found was that this antiviral medication also has an effect on stem cells within the liver. And it is through that effect that you get less cancer. Oh. So it was never set out to be a stem cell project. Yeah. And at that time, we never really referred to them as stem cells either. Yeah. Um, we called them in another name. And it wasn't until maybe two or three years after my PhD that it, that it became recognized that these are actually stem cells within the liver and we should treat them as such. And that was round about the time that I moved to Melbourne from Perth and yeah. was, you know, part part of a stem cell group and was more exposed to this notion of stem cells. Um, so I kind of fell into it, really. Yeah, it was never okay. by choice. Wow. Well, I guess that's what a lot of science is about, right? Just kind of figuring stuff out that's new that people didn't know before. Yeah, and I think... I think sometimes career progression is also just keeping an open mind. Yeah. You know, just being curious and saying, well, doesn't sound like a bad idea. Maybe this could be interesting. Yeah. Um, and then just going with it. Yeah. yeah, of course. You said you were calling the stem cell something different. Like what 
how do you distinguish between stem cells and things that aren't stem cells? Like what, what criteria do you use to determine that? So there are two major criteria. One is that a stem cell can self-renew. So a stem cell must be able to make another stem cell. Okay. And the other criteria is that the stem cell must be able to turn into something else. So, so it's referred to as a differentiation. So a stem cell must be able to differentiate. Um, so that's a very broad classification. And stem cell scientists would, you know, further refine that definition. Um, so blood stem cells, so bone marrow stem cells. So bone marrow transplants are actually a transplantation of stem cells from the bone marrow. Um, and the issue and the controversy around stem cells back in probably the early 2000s mm -hmm. were that the limitation of the definition was around embryonic stem cells. So there, yeah. you do have to destroy an embryo in order to get stem cells. Mm -hmm. um, 2020, the world's a very different place for many reasons. But the definition of stem cells is also very different. So we now know that every tissue has stem cells. So you can get yeah. cells from hair follicles, um, from dental pulp, from fat, uh, and every organ has their own stem cells that are involved in ensuring that the organ continues functioning. Yeah, so our general body regenerating itself over time as we get older and yeah. healing stuff, that's all part of that. Yeah, skin, for instance. You cut yourself. Yeah. The reason why it doesn't turn into an ulcer is because if you're well, um, there are stem cells within the skin, of the, the deeper layers of the skin that will create more of themselves and create more stem cells, and then they'll differentiate and eventually repair that void. So can you use, like, the liver stem cells somewhere else, or is it unique to different areas? So there are... A couple of things that people are investigating for liver stem cells. One of them is when you've got, so for instance, when there's paracetamol overdose, mm -hmm. um, that causes a type of acute liver injury that overwhelms the liver's ability to repair itself. Yeah. And one of the things that people are asking is, can you deliver a drug that would then activate the liver stem cells to their maximum capacity? to then repair the liver. Um, another group of scientists are looking at, they're looking at collecting liver stem cells and looking to see if that can be a method of maybe as a, as a substitute for whole liver transplantation. So rather than transplanting whole liver, they'll, they'll have a scaffold and they'll put these liver stem cells and grow like a mini liver and then transplant that instead of looking for, for an organ donor. Very cool. So is that related to the 3D printing organ type stuff or is that slightly different? Um, there are people who are looking to do 3D printing. The, the 3D printing is quite complex, as you can imagine. Yeah. Because what you're trying to print is a scaffold and an organ that has multiple cell types. So you're not just trying to print liver stem cells. You're trying to print bile ducts. Um, yeah, blood all the cells. other aspects. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what others have suggested is rather than doing 3D printing, which could be mm -hmm. um, quite complex and might take a while to develop, is to have a scaffold pre-printed mm -hmm. and then you seed the liver stem cells in there. 
but they're but they are thin enough to allow for blood to just flow over and for the or the mini organ to then do what it needs to do without requiring yeah. its own circulatory system. It's a different approach, but you're still yeah. kind of building a new organ from a different way of sourcing it. Yeah. So the liver would the the, the mini liver, if it works, would still do the same things as the rest of the liver. So the idea not being that you explant the diseased tissue, but rather that you then transplant additional um, mini liver into the recipient so that there is some there is some i guess capacity to deal with yeah yeah so it would still do things like um produce bile acids it would still produce albumin and detoxify um things like paracetamol um but without having to remove the liver that's already there because there might still be some functional tissue that's still left in that liver yeah is that why you're look, okay because stem cells as you explained it's all about the regeneration aspect um that's how you got into regenerative medicine for the field and area that you're researching now so another one of those where i never really chose to do it <laughs> it just kind of happened um so the lab that i signed up to the lab that i moved from perth to work with mm-hmm. had disbanded yeah. <laughs> so I moved from Perth to Melbourne in December 2006, mm-hmm. and by September 2007, the lab had disbanded. Wow. And I was basically job hunting. <laughs> I don't know if you want to edit this out. Um, so I found oh, myself, happens. you know, I, I was going for job interviews and I around Melbourne, um, I got a job offer with a cancer lab mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. My PhD had something to do with cancer. Maybe I'll go ahead and do that. But I also at the same time got offered the job that I have now. Yeah. Um, and that was work with an obstetrician. Mm-hmm. And I think what struck me was that I really liked him. He was, <laughs> it was just a personal connection that led yeah. me to go with one job rather than the other yeah because i i felt like the mentorship was going to be the most important thing not the day-to-day work yes well you and, like who you're working with yeah and yeah. not to say that i didn't think that i would get mentored well i just didn't have mm. that instant spark of connection yeah. and i guess that paid off because working with this obstetrician, I was actually working on a disease called preeclampsia. So I was recruited yes. to work on a work called preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. And that work went well. And for a little while, both the placental stem cell work that I still work on now and the preeclampsia research program were both progressing well. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I just, you know, you, you think, i got to clone myself to keep working at this paper. <laughs> And I had to decide, you know, which one I loved more. And it was the stem cell work that I enjoyed a lot more of. And that was around about the time the term regenerative medicine was coined. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is is a good opportunity to get in um, at the ground level and grow this research program. And so far that work has continued to gain a lot of traction. So with that piece of work, we essentially just turn 
biological waste um, into something that can be used. So as a regenerative medicine, it's very cheap. So mm-hmm. the stem cells that we work on are from the amniotic membrane. Yes. So that's the membrane that surrounds the baby during pregnancy. And the amniotic membrane, along with the rest of the placenta, is usually discarded after the baby's been born. Um, and instead of that, you know, instead of it being chucked out, we ask the parents if they would consent to us keeping the placenta um, for research use. And we take the placenta back to our lab and we isolate the the cells from the amniotic membrane. And we've been doing that work for over 10 years now, and we're now in five clinical trials around Australia, soon to be moving towards other countries as well. So it's progressing well. Um, And I think like with most experimental therapies, it will take a while before we see this offered to everyone for example, because there's a lot of research that still needs to be done. Yeah. But when, you know, I was pregnant, we got shown all these things about cell care and all those other stem cell oh, yeah. places. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, well, they show you the, the brochure. They go, you know, this is a kid who'd benefited from this. But you don't really, you still don't really understand from the marketing what that involves or, you know, what kind of um, scope all of that stuff has. And for a lot of people, because they don't understand how all of this works, it's kind of, oh, I'm donating stuff to science. And that's this hazy cloud of, you know, (laughs) I I don't know. So being able to hear from you just how it kind of hangs together, all the different ways that it can be applied, that's really cool. You know, it's amazing just hearing about the growth in that area. Yeah. um, Yeah. Speaking of growth in the area, one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment, I'm, I'm writing a grant on and a yeah. little bit obsessed over it at the moment, is <laughs> that's how it always starts. Like it starts Obsession. as a little obsession. <laughs> um, that's how all good science starts, right? Yes. Is actually to find out which women have good stem cells. Yeah. Like stem cells from the placenta. Um, because that's actually not known and it's not obvious to everyone. Yeah. So, for instance, Australia has, around the world, Australia has the highest rate of gestational diabetes. So this is diabetes that only occurs during pregnancy. Yes. Is that any good or bad? The assumption is that, oh, you're you're now diabetic, so that's probably going to affect your placenta. So yeah. those women are generally not asked to donate their tissues to because it might be yeah compromised in some way but we've never done that research before so So. (laughs) we have to (laughs) yeah exactly and and does it affect all the stem cells or just one type we don't know that's cool so that's the thing that you're working on right now to get yeah yeah it's my current obsession so antidepressants in australia about double what is um used around the world so antidepressants during pregnancy does that have an effect? Does it cross the placenta? Mm. Does it mean that the cord blood is not as good? We don't know. So cord blood yeah. banks, their criteria is about volume of cord blood and how many yeah. cells are in the cord blood. Mm-hmm. But how good the stem cells are, never been studied before. Okay. So there's this huge knowledge gap that we have to address. And 
um, I think that's the role of the scientists in, in yeah. this sphere. You know, we ask the questions, we answer them, and then with that, you can create them, po you know, policies around it um, and position statements that blood banks can then use. So the, the cells that you have, from what you're able to access, you grade those as well in terms of how good they are or how potent yeah, so um, we've been working with the International Society for Cell Therapies, uh, cell, cell and Gene Therapies, and there's actually a recommendation that there need to be potency assays before you release yeah. them. So for it's, it's basically a set of quality control measures. Mm. So rather than just saying this bag of cells contains five doses, we're mm. saying that this bag of cells will do at very minimum, will address inflammation, will address wound healing, et cetera, et cetera. So what that means is that of say 50 placentas, maybe only three of them will get released for a particular indication and maybe the rest will be released for something else. Okay. Or maybe of the 50, maybe five of them will actually fail that level of batch testing where they've got those number of cells, they're 95% viable, so they look healthy, but they don't actually do what we need it to do. Um, and having those really tight criteria means that we have a better sense of what clinical efficacy is going to do. So by the time you take it to a clinical trial, it should work. And yeah, reliably and repeatably. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, so from the ones that you haven't found to be as potent, have you been able to identify the criteria for why that is or? Not yet, and I suspect that's because we haven't actually asked the right questions. So right. in science, you start off with a hypothesis and then you power, you, you do the statistics and you have enough patients in each group to actually ask that question. And I think because we haven't specifically asked that question, we've never had the statistical power to answer it. Yeah. So no, we'll have, you know, Pin it down. Exactly. We'll have, you know, two or three in each group. So it's not really enough for us to actually answer that question. So we're hoping that by asking it very explicitly now, we'll actually be able to answer it and have a very clear understanding of who should be a cord blood donor, for instance. Yeah. Um, does a BMI over 30 mean that placental stem cells are not so good? Maybe the cord blood's okay, but maybe placental stem cells are not so good. So yeah, we want to be able to answer that. And I think having that clarity allows the field to progress a lot quicker. Yes. So hmm. what's involved in getting, you know, this grant proposal up? A lot of <laughs> desk. <laughs> Yeah. A, a lot. So the, the fun thing about grant proposals is at the proposal stage, anything is possible because you're yeah. just asking a question. Mm -hmm. But the, the less fun about it is where essentially salaries are on the line. This is how we fund yeah. research. So yeah. if we don't get the funding, we don't get to pay the people to do the work. People lose their jobs. So there's an enormous amount of pressure while you're writing a proposal as well. Um, but the, the guts of it is essentially getting a very clear question across. So your grant, someone reading your grant should understand what question you're asking. They shouldn't, if it's well written, they shouldn't have to be a specialist in the field. So I should be able to explain concepts such as why it's important to answer this question, um, how many people are affected by it, how it could change policy. So 
that's just the gist of what goes into a grant. Um, you know, having aims that are very clear and having a time frame that's achievable. So if, you, if for instance, the incidence of gestational diabetes um, was only 0.5%. And in our hospital, we're in a very large hospital, but if we were in a very small hospital and we only get maybe 50 um, women coming all year, then the chances of us being able to fulfill those numbers is pretty slim. So having a project that's very feasible, um, making sure that you can actually achieve those aims in the time frame that you prescribe, that's got to all be in that grant. Yeah. Obviously, you need the numbers to make things statistically significant. Would you work with other hospitals to get extra data in the event that what you're looking for has too small sample size? Yeah, so if we were in that situation, then the answer is definitely yes. And that's when you would have co-investigators that are from those other hospitals to make sure that you can, you know, collectively as a team actually answer those questions. Um, we won't have to do that in this particular case because we're actually the biggest public service provider in Victoria. Um, and we're also a very large maternity um, tertiary hospital. So we get all the complicated cases. So kind of the argument that I'm making in the grant is kind of like, it's logical that we do it where we are because we get, you know, <laughs> when I look spectrum. through our cesarean list, we get more unhealthy than healthy because yeah. the healthy women are, you know, delivering, they're doing home births or they're just doing a vaginal delivery. Um, so what ends up on the elective cesarean list tends to be the complex cases anyway. Yeah. You said you've only been in the lab like twice since all of the quarantine stuff. So. Mm -hmm. Ordinarily, what would a day at the lab be like for you? I'll give you the, the full what could happen. Yeah. When I go into the lab, it yeah. could be a phone call from the midwife to say that um, there is a placenta ready for collection and I'll go into the operating theatres, get changed into scrubs, um, pick up the placenta in the operating theatre. That's generally when the obstetrician is stitching mum up after the baby's yep. been delivered. And we'll pick that up, bring it up to the lab and start the stem cell isolation. Yeah. So you do in, the pick up just to ensure control of the sample? Um, there is a bit of that. So there is this term called chain of identity and chain yes. of custody. And so having a trained person be part of that chain just eliminates error out of yeah. it. Um, we also have to pull out the amnion from the rest of the placenta in a sterile manner. So yeah. this allows us to then use those cells um, for clinical applications or in, in the clinical trials. So that requires a special amount of training and then knowing how to sterilize the amniotic membrane. All of that actually happens in the operating theater. Okay. So what we bring up is actually just the amniotic membrane that's already been sterilized. So the operating theater already has a sterile field um, and that's where all that happens. The other thing that could happen when I go into the lab is going down to the animal house. So yeah. um, animal-based research, it unfortunately still remains a huge part of clinical translation. So you would not be allowed by regulators to introduce a therapy into humans if we've never shown safety and efficacy in animal models. 
-hmm. So that is unfortunately part of it. When you go into the animal house, you're going to do a bunch of work under, you know, animal ethics approval, of course. Um, and there's a lot of measures that we put in place to make sure that the animals are, are looked after in the most humane way possible. But when you collect that data and you present that to a human ethics committee and they're convinced and you get the okay to now help patients who are incredibly ill, um, it's, it's yeah, it's really rewarding. Uh, the yeah. diseases that we're going after as well are intractable diseases. I should have mentioned that up front. Mm -hmm. We don't go after disease indications where they can be treated using contemporary measures. So for instance, one of the things that we're looking at is acute ischemic stroke. So if after the three to six hour period and a clot buster cannot be administered, there's virtually nothing you can do for those stroke patients. Yeah. And those are the types of stroke patients we're going after where nothing else can be done and yeah. there is an opportunity for us to make a difference. Yeah. Um, and another disease that we're going after is Crohn's-related perianal fistulas. And this is a debilitating disease in people who are young, you know, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, who should have good functioning bodies and because of Crohn's disease they, they can't. Um, yeah. So we're working with a bunch of colorectal surgeons to see if cell therapy could be the way to go for those patients. You're covering quite a few areas with the research at the moment. Yeah so the it might seem strange initially that we're going across from you know very premature babies with bronchopulmonary yeah. dysplasia at one end to Crohn's disease sort of like in their 20s to 40s and then to stroke at the other end of the spectrum. But underlying all of those conditions is inflammation that is not addressed with anti-inflammatories. So you can't give an anti-inflammatory and have the disease actually calm down. Yeah. Um, all of those diseases are extremely complex. There is a need yeah. to create blood flow across all of those diseases. Um, and there is an opportunity to reactivate the stem cells that are already in the tissues that are affected, bearing in mind that every tissue has your own stem cells. So we're not proposing that the cells that we transplant will turn into new tissue. What we're saying is that they'll go into those tissues and actually reactivate all of those processes. And Just in trigger that, it all again. Yeah, exactly. So wow. that's, that's kind of how it's kind of gotten to the breadth that it has. Yeah, okay. I can definitely see how that spread the scope a bit. Yeah. And the really cool thing, I think, as well, is that none of these clinical trials came because we were knocking on the doors of clinicians. Yeah. They've always been, here's our science, and then, you know, we'll publish it, and we'll do the usual academic thing, we'll publish it, and we'll present at conferences. And then the, the clinicians come to us saying, we've got this thing that we're dealing with day to day, and there's no treatment for these patients. Can we work with you to see if this works? So that's been really that's rewarding as well. It's great that they're able, like other people are seeing the scope of the work and trying to expand on it. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of courage for, you know, on their part because they're the lead investigator. as well, parts. yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think we're quite fortunate in Australia that there's, there's a good in my opinion, there's a really good balance between medical innovation, so people just sticking their necks out to say it's worth a go because nothing else we've tried worked so far, 
and having really good um, human ethics requirements and having really good regulatory approval processes in place to ensure that anything that does get approved to go into humans has actually gone through the rigmarole of all of those steps. It's just part of the process. Yeah, yeah. We're kind of approaching my limit of time with you, so we might move on to those yeah. other weird questions that I showed you. <laughs> so. Yeah. We probably touched on some of this already, but what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your work? Um, well, we've talked about weightlifting already. That's quite unrelated. But probably another thing that's quite unrelated is dog training. Dog training, um, okay. Yeah, I don't have a lot of time to spend on it, but I really enjoy it. Um, yeah. It's one of those hobbies where really the outcome that you get in your dog is entirely dependent on how you train your dog. Yes. And it can be very frustrating because <laughs> you need to work out what it is that you're doing wrong that's giving yeah. you the effect that you don't want. So, <laughs> Self-reflection so that, the dog's not going to tell you. <laughs> no, no. Sometimes they do. Very rarely. <laughs> and that's why you've been doing fostering over the years as well? Um, yeah, we've. I think we'll probably foster more this year. In the past, it's been hard to foster because... Um, I travel a lot for work, mm -hmm. but I think we'll probably be fostering a lot more this year while Australia is not allowing us to go anywhere. <laughs> not that I'm complaining. I think, I think we're in a pretty safe place here. We are, definitely. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? On the same thread... Shadow the Sheepdog by Enid Blyton. Shadow Blank. the Sheepdog. <laughs> so, so when you asked me that question, I was like, oh, which of my books do I remember being the most dog-eared? Like, <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. So as a your typical Asian child growing up in Raised Singapore. Based on Enid Blyton. And not allowed to have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not right. dog. Yeah. So, so um, I think that was probably why I was so obsessed with dogs. <laughs> and pretty much the first chance I got, I got a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, right, being deprived of this going to make it happen now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted a dog that would follow me everywhere, like Shadow the Sheep <laughs> did. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I got a Great Dane who <laughs> it, but was – in most parts, just lazy. <laughs> so yeah. I could have done better with selecting my breeds, but eh. <laughs> All good. Still got a good companion out of it, even though it wasn't quite what you were reading. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And lastly, probably the harder one. What advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do? and Or what should they not listen to? Um, as I mentioned repeatedly I completely fell into this yeah. so I think my advice would be don't plan where you think you're gonna go because it can be difficult and probably would lead to a lot of disappointment because yeah. um, you you tend to if you set your goals up and it doesn't quite work out the way you think there's probably a lot of self-critique which is not healthy anyway um, I would say keep your options open if it sounds like fun and if it'll pay you enough to make ends meet, just give that a go. Um, if you're passionate about something and the stars line up, 
you will end up in a place that you're pretty happy with anyway. That sounds like a compromise. It's not really. I don't mean for it to sound like <laughs> <laughs> um, Also, I think as if you're thinking of going into science and if you're thinking, oh, I want to be an academic, I want to work for a university, I want to be a professor, I want to be a scientist, whatever. If, if that's the way you're thinking, chances are you're a geek <laughs> and you're a primary school geek. Fret not, there's plenty of you out there. <laughs> And it won't be so obvious initially, but as you get older, you will find your community and it does get easier. But also never think that because you're book smart, that life is going to be easy because so much of the skills that you have to acquire um, as you build a career, you know, outside of studying, as you start building a career, you can't read about it you can read about it you're not going to learn a lot from books a lot of it's just putting yourself out there and just being brave and trying it out for yourself i would also um warn people not to stick with something if your gut feeling is i'm not great at this i'm not really enjoying this then quit early quit early and try something else because sticking around with it it's overrated yeah and yeah. you, you, you can burn yourself out because if you're trying to push down a path that's just not working, it's just, yeah, you're not going to love it. It's not going to, you know, help you grow. Yeah. And I think with any line of work or in any career path, you, you have to have the wisdom and the maturity to ask yourself, is it me? Is it the type of work or is it the work environment? Mm-hmm. Because it could be any of those or a combination of other things. Um, So if you think, I actually like what, actually do ask yourself the question, do I like what I do? I just don't like it in this setting or is it me? I'm just not cut out for it and it's just ego that's making me stick to this. Um, Yeah, that's probably all the advice I would give. It's all good advice. So subjective too. It is, but it's, it's about reflection. Yeah, that's always important. Yeah. And if you're constantly in a rush to get to your next task, um, you just don't have that time for self-reflection. So it's really important to make time for that. Yeah, definitely. Mm. That's been very cool. If you'd like to learn a bit more about Beck's work, I've included some links below and you can reach out to Beck on Twitter at BiotechBeck. That's B-I-O-T-E-C-H-B-E-C. So, Beck, thanks again. That was fun. It was. I'll talk to you later. Enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs> you too. Bye. Bye. This has definitely been fun. To learn more about Rebecca and what we discussed on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. I plan to make more of these, so if you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.